uh, here we are live um, on the PullRequest College Show. I'm um, going Blake Masters, who's still COO at Teal Capital and also running uh, for a Senate seat in Arizona. And as I was telling Blake, I had this like short list of 10 people I really wanted to interview. A lot of people said yes. And there's a bunch of reasons I want to talk to Blake. Uh, you and I have actually never met, but I think we run in similar circles. It's almost surprising, in fact, that our paths haven't, haven't crossed. Um, and, you know, part of the reason why I wanted to talk is because, um, obviously, there's a lot going on in U.S. politics. <laughs> and one of those things is that I think you're seeing a new breed of politician, particularly on the right, um, in which I would include you, um, people like J.D. Vance, um, Dan Crenshaw, um, et cetera, who I think represent new faces on the right um, that, you know, are not the old right, whatever the old right means. And um, so it's, it's, it's doubly, I think for, it's interesting for that reason. And then the other reason, sorry, let me mute notifications. Um, the other reason is that you're somebody from tech who went into politics, right? And I think one of the criticisms that I think is totally fair, and I often make myself to techies, is that techies will often complain about the inefficiency of government or the inadequacy of public policy or whatever. But it's like, or even something more local like BSF, uh, BSF Unified School District, which has been this, this clown show for the past year and a half in which they're renaming schools that they refuse to open. And it's, you know, and then uh, the deposed head of it, who just got recalled, suing the school board for $87 million. And it's just, it is literally a clown show that if you wrote that as a Hollywood script, people would think you're lying. But nonetheless, is the SF reality, right? But then you look at something like the SF school board or, or, the, or the soups who actually run the city. And it's like, these are elections that are run by like, that are won by a few hundred votes and whose campaign chests are like, tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars, which would be trivial by, by tech standards. So it's like, I won't name names, but a lot of people that I know in tech privately express a lot of concern about it. But it's like, well, do what? toss your hat in the ring, man, and just like go. Yep. <laughs> do something. And, and if you look at the history of any source of power, whether it be Wall Street shipping money, whatever, they've always played a role in society. I mean, often pursuing their own interests, of course, but often more than that, right? The famous example of Carnegie building libraries all across the United States or whatever. Or if you go to the Met in New York, uh, you know, corporations compete to actually fund a cultural institution. So anyhow, I'll shut up there, but I'd, I'd love to hear from you, Blake, someone who's had success and had an entire life in the tech world, co-authored with Peter Thiel, Zero to One, which is an excellent book, I think one of the really few good readable um, business how-to in, in the tech world. How and why did you go from that world to, to this world? Yeah, well, thanks. It, uh, it's definitely tempting, you know, not to, just to keep doing what I'm doing. Um, you know, I run Peter's family office, and he's obviously uh, fascinating and successful. And so it's it's all good. Um, I, part of me, though, I just, I feel like it's time for a change. I see this country basically falling apart. Um I mean, I think things are really messed up and I've been paying attention for a long time now. I think my skills and my interests sort of lend themselves to going into politics. Um, you know, I was involved with the, the sort of crazy Trump 2016 campaign, which was successful and then the transition team. And so I've sort of seen like the inside baseball on how to do something new in politics and also just, you know, I'm not naive. I know how hard that'll be, but I, I think I can win this race. I think, um, you can't draw a path back to the GOP taking the, the Senate majority without Arizona. And so I think this is like the pivotal race. I think maybe it's somewhat grandiose, but I think the future of the country could depend on this race. And I would, I guess I'd just feel bad. I'd feel complacent. Like I was giving up if I didn't throw my hat in the ring and try to do it. Cause I think once I win, 
you know, I can actually be quite effective. I think we just need a whole new generational change, not just in the U.S. Senate, but at basically every level of government. Uh, you know, it's interesting. There's a famous quote by Bismarck, right? That never, never ask how laws or sausages are made, right? Because <laughs> you just don't, you just don't right. see. And in, in some sense, you saw how the sausage was made, and you didn't run screaming. You're actually still in it. So I find that interesting um, that 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 was true. Because because I, I think one of the things that the tech people respond to the hypothetical question I stated is that, like, well, you know, politics just aren't run like like a lot of corporations. And and I catch myself sometimes thinking this as well. It's like, man, wouldn't it be great if just other parts of American life were run as efficiently and mission focused as say Facebook to cite a random example of a company that I've worked at in the past. So do you, don't you ever feel you'll get, you'll get frustrated? I mean, all the glad handing and kissing babies and barbecues you have to go to, does that, ever, does that ever get to you? Well, I actually, I actually like that part. Oh, really? okay. Like I really do like meeting people, you know, I was at an event last night, um, like 70 people. This guy had like a whole living room. that was basically um, purpose built to house his model train collection and so, like, just really interesting people. These are, you know, it's right wing Republican activist uh, rooms that I'm going to right now. And so they're just they're just good people, uh, you know, patriots. Maybe they've lost a son in Iraq or Afghanistan. You know, maybe they're struggling with some some disease. But like everybody's got everybody's got um, everybody's got problems, even if they're doing quite well. They're sort of, um, you know, pe- people suffer and people share that with me on the campaign trail. And so they they talk to me about how disillusioned they are with you know this sense that they're losing the country but also how hopeful and optimistic they are and how good it is to see a smart young competent person you know i mean me uh, i guess running for office and so the actual sort of retail politics um i know we sort of deride it you know it's just a thing that politicians have to do kissing the babies press the flesh i actually really like that i get energy from it and it's fascinating to meet so many people so i like that i take your point though like no, once once you're in the Senate, you see how it actually works or, you know, on the Trump transition team, you, you just see how this like permanent administrative state bureaucracy works or doesn't work or is designed not to work. That stuff is uh, it's sobering. I mean, it's really messy. But I also think we're just drowning in bureaucracy as a society. And so I'm like, really excited to, to get in and take the proverbial machete and just start hacking away at brush because it could work a lot more efficiently. I think it's a cope when, when Republicans say like, oh, the government's always stupid and can't do ever anything efficient. It's like, no, the government actually used to be a lot more competent than it is now. And we should demand that it be so again. So it'll, it'll be, it'll be frustrating, but I look forward to it. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's one of the things that kind of pisses me off when you, the tech people say, it's like, Oh God, everyone's in government's an idiot. It's like, well, if we all collectively believe that, then that is in fact true. <laughs> then that's going to come. If you take away the prestige of working for government and doing your duty, then in fact, that is true. A, a random side question, which is typically not I, something I hadn't planned on asking, but you touched on something, which is, you know, a lot about a lot of what we see today would be described by the term elite failure, right? Whether it be what I consider to be a debacle in, in terms of the Afghanistan pullout or even much of our COVID response, it's it's clear that the current crop of elite kind of isn't up to the task in many ways. And I wonder if really it's a measurement problem and things like social media are really like a body cam for elites, similar that like when we suddenly got body cams, like, oh, oh my God, suddenly there was all this brutality. It's like, well, actually, no, it was always there. We just weren't seeing it before. I'm curious if you think it's actually the case that people, that the government is more incompetent now than it was, or we're just seeing it more and, and the internet just basically demolishes trust in, in authority of any form. Maybe there's some of that, but it's, it's not like I think that our, our representatives are like literally lower IQ or something than they used to be. Um, I, I think it's just, I do think just decade over decade, we, we just accrete more process and bureaucracy and people, you know, there's a cultural shift towards a lack of individual agency. 
Um, and so you don't see great statesmen anymore, you know, um, you just don't not because I think like people are different or don't have the capacity to do it. But I think Congress has basically just like delegated its entire job to the administrative agencies. The system's become so Byzantine and complex and huge that no one feels like they could even master it. And so you don't even try. And, you know, politics sort of devolves into, you know, virtue signaling to your partisan tribe on social media. You know, you get a sense that a lot of the congressmen just kind of get elected to try to become famous. It's just following in AOC's footsteps. It's not about actually doing anything. It's about your personal brand or something. Um, so I think the internet like relates to it, but I actually think the system is just messed up and no, our leaders are worse um, because no one's in charge. Does that mean, does that mean Blake, we're not going to see you in at the Met Gala on that, with a tuxedo well, with some sort of resounding. I mean, I actually, you know, and I didn't criticize her for that. I obviously think we should not, uh, what is it? Tax the rich, step the rich, um, yeah. absurd in, in obvious ways. But like, I think the conservative pile on is exactly what she wanted. You know, like I think ASC's politics are horrible. I think they'll lead us to a really dark place, but credit where credit's due. Like she's talented. She knew what she was doing. She provoked that whole media backlash. She owned the news cycle. It was only Tucker Carlson on the right. Who was like, you know, in his nightly monologue, he's like, you think I'm going to talk about AOC and her stupid dress? No, not taking the bait. Let's talk about actual news because, like, we have an invasion at the southern border. Inflation's going crazy. The Dems are trying to pass $3.5 trillion, right? Can we talk about what matters? So AOC is a master. She understands the, uh, the medium is the message, and she's good. And I wish we had some, you know, talented people on the right that could uh, go toe-to-toe. Right. I mean, that's, that's the thing, right? Like, and it... This is a political, I typically don't take public political positions because it's just like a world of pain I don't want. <laughs> but um, I think you're putting your finger on something good, interesting, right? Which is like, if I were, a, a, you know, a conservative political strategist, which obviously I'm not, but what, one of my challenges would be, how do you appeal to like young, smart people, image conscious people, right? Because like the image of the right of like that pillow guy or whatever, I, I don't even know his name, but he just seems so, ri- Mike yeah, that guy. like he just seems so ridiculous that I, I just you're not going to have me on board if, if like that's the face of the thing right and uh, how do you how do you create that appeal? how do you, how do you make how do you get as cool as aoc on the right put it that way i guess that's the question yeah i mean one the, the only prayer of it right is is to uh is to find talented young people who are on the right who i think who believe the right things who who you know privilege competence over virtue signaling and that stuff and i mean i, I think there's a limit to how much you can engineer this like i'm not trying to go copy aoc I'm not trying to go copy, you know, Donald Trump. Donald Trump might be the one example of this. Right. And he, of course, is, you know, not not super young. Um, but he he did it by being like himself, uh, he, you know, and, and his sort of TV persona and his personal persona. It's one and the same. It's like you got the Trump show all day, every day. He said what he thought. Uh, he was bold. He was original. Um, you know, it was sometimes like really zany and sometimes holy shit, I can't believe he got in this fight with CNN and it was wild, but it was, it was raw and it was authentic. And so I think we just have to find people who have some sort of like compelling authenticity to contribute. Hopefully, you know, as I get traction here in Arizona, like that's what I'm doing. And, and, you know, maybe I won't be the perfect messenger for it. Maybe, maybe I, I wish we had a hundred people on the right that were, you know, better than me that were out there doing it um, to, to help out. But I think it's just, be bold, be yourself. Don't just, you know, default to talking and consultant provided talking points. Cause okay. Once I'm in here, I've been campaigning for about 10 weeks and I, 
I just really quickly understood why everything in politics looks the same, sounds the same, feel the same. It's because like there's a playbook, you hire consultants, you hire a media consultant. They tell you to never say anything unplanned. They want you to perfectly to, to workshop all your answers. They want you to train for hours on end about how to pivot away from a tough question towards more favorable terrain. And it's like, yeah, you shouldn't be an idiot. You can't just like fly off the handle. But I don't think people respond to that message anymore. And that's why you get every baby boomer looking conservative or even the young ones I find are like really scripted and, you know, they're just delivering Paul Ryan talking points. And if we do that, I think we continue to get crushed by the progressive left. Um, okay. So, you know, yeah, let's talk about some of your some of your positions. Um, and again, I, you know, freely concede I'm not like a, a political journalist to the extent I'm a journalist at all. So if the questions are, you know, naive or you really want to go deeper, by, by all means, please do. I mean, w one thing. One thing that I might find or that, that I think is interesting from people who potentially go from tech into politics, particularly on, on the right side of that divide. And I think it's, it's a thread that I see even among my tech friends, to be clear. I don't think you're like you, you're some weird, unique embodiment of it. But there's a weird anti-tech vibe even inside tech. Right. <laughs> In the sense that like a lot of the like or on on this what we're broadly calling the new right. Right. There's a certain level of anti-corporate, anti-tech vibe, which is historically a little bit contradictory because, you know, typically the right is like pro-corporate. But what I'm talking about is, you know, objections to Facebook, you know, censoring or at least heavily moderating speech in certain ways or taking upon itself to judge what is or is not misinformation, which I think is a pretty squishy term. Um, that's one point. Another point is, you know, questions of international capitalism, uh, offshoring labor to other countries, right? Um, how do you, in some sense, manage to to juggle what I assume is obviously you came from the tech world and appreciation for all that technology makes possible, with at the same time uh, potential objections about how tech carries itself in the world and its impact on on politics? Yeah, I'll take the sort of big tech question first. Uh, I'm I'm super pro tech, super pro business, right? Like we invest in startups. I hope the startups become fantastically successful. And we wrote in zero to one, like every entrepreneur naturally and obviously wants to build a monopoly, you know, which we define as a company so successful, it's got a durable profit stream. No one can hope to compete with it. Um, I think, though, in the last few years, like these, these, you know, uh, fan companies and, you know, just especially Google and Facebook are the ones I'm most concerned about. They've gotten so big and that network effect is so powerful. Uh, I don't think the reason they stay powerful is because they're continually innovating. I think they innovated long ago. I think now they're just continue to capture the rents and their monopoly profits from their hyper-targeted advertising. Um, I, it's, it's just too big. At a certain point, like I think people, even on the right, can concede like if your company is more powerful than most governments, especially when it starts like Facebook, working with the United States government to control the flow of information, you, you, that's, that's pretty worrying. You, know, you no longer have a free society. If this stuff is the new town square and they're ripping the president off, you know, for quote unquote, unciding violence, when that's obviously just so pretextual. Um, Facebook is ripping off the Hunter Biden laptop story, New York Post story the week before the election. How is that not election interference? I think past a certain point, no, these companies, uh, nominally private, can be treated like common carriers and should be. Maybe we should use antitrust and, and look into like, why is Facebook allowed to own WhatsApp and Instagram and Facebook Classic and sort of use all of those as as different ways to hoover up all this data on people, which is then used against them. So 
I think people are here five years ago, you know, Republicans would definitely say, Blake, who are you to, to, to regulate a private business or tell me how big it can get. And now people are like, no, they, they, they get it. Um, in the rooms I'm going to, they're like, we won't have a first amendment in two or three years if we don't do something about these companies. So I think you can preserve a huge market for innovation and, you know, it, it, there's no chilling effect. Like entrepreneurs are still going to build companies. It's just, yeah, if you become some global multinational at the level of Facebook, be prepared to be treated differently than like a local bakery. Yeah, interesting. Um, you know, I think I, one of my hobbies is trying to identify common themes in like, the, you know, the mayhem that you see on Twitter every day. And I think one of the governing themes, they're almost like platonic abstractions of which we see the, the sort of sorted shadows. I think wh one of the themes is that so much of human, of American life is now in effect governed or regulated by corporations that in the past were governed by governments. And that's the free speech issues you're talking about. At the end of the day, what, yep. what the Supreme Court says about free speech actually doesn't matter. It's what this quote unquote Supreme Court inside Facebook that decides what is or isn't misinformation that actually matters, right? Or COVID policy, right? The fact that every different, every company has some vaccination policy or not. And again, it seems very scattershot and patchwork and unfair. And I guess, I guess, so what would be the sort of the big, the big vision view of what you're saying in the sense that do you see a bigger role for government in American life? Like, or, or even taking the micro case, what would that mean? Would it, would it mean effectively enforcing and treating uh, private companies, medium, or, or, or treating as, as, as the FCC regulates bandwidth, right? In which it just says, no, you, you, there are certain rules because you're using our atmosphere. <laughs> there are certain rules about how you do it. And maybe now it's no longer being broadcast through radio, but nonetheless, there are certain rules around how you disseminate media. Is that, is that the vision that you're? Yeah, something like that. I mean, just on the big tech stuff, it's like repeal section 230 if the companies are going to act more like publishers or platforms, right? Devil's in the details, but that's on the table. Treat, treat them as common carriers. If you have more than, I don't know, arbitrary, but we could, Congress should have a debate, right? That's the point. 50 million users, uh, 500 billion in market cap. Congratulations. You, you know, your, your communications functions are now regulated like a common carrier. Um, we probably need to update the antitrust laws. And, uh, you know, they were written at a time when consumer harm was defined as paying higher prices because you were worried about the railroad jacking up prices. Well, Facebook is free to use, you know, the product is free because you are the product and it's just a different ballgame. So do we think that the 70-year-old senators in office now are sort of technically competent to even consider the question? Um, for the most part, you know, they're really good people, and I certainly don't think that they have the finger on the pulse there. So yeah, I think we just need to pay attention to this. Um, but absolutely, like, we 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 got to be sensitive to this fact that corporate concentration of power at a certain point can be as violative of people's liberties, just like government can. And the right historically is very good at understanding no absolute power or, you know, too much power in government hands is bad. And I think that's also really bad when it comes to, uh, to corporations, you know, this is something like Barry Goldwater understood, uh, Teddy Roosevelt understood, but now ever since, you know, the, the eighties, just because we had to, you know, be so, so pro corporate and so pro capitalist in order to fight Soviet communism, people, Republicans think they can just get away with reciting the same Reaganite mantras. And I, th I think Reagan was a great leader. He was right for his time. But if you don't update at all, if you just continue to pursue the mindless sort of free trade um, ideology in the 90s and 2000s, you know, helps China vis-a-vis -vis the United States, hollows out our middle class. And this kind of segues into your second question. But yeah, I think there's room to be super pro-market and super pro-capitalist and also tilt back in the direction of an actual industrial policy. Like we took all that productive manufacturing capacity in Silicon Valley 
It's named Silicon Valley because that's where we invented that stuff. And we shipped it to Southeast Asia to save a buck. And I think that's like really bad for the loss of high-tech manufacturing jobs in the United States. But now it's like a national security threat too, right? Um, it's good that we're bringing back Intel and TSMC to Phoenix, but like half the semiconductor capacity in the world is in Taiwan. And of course, China looks at Afghanistan now and they're salivating about taking Taiwan because they know Biden is just super weak. And that would be a disaster. Ford already can't make F-150s because of the chip shortage. And so we've, and COVID has like, you know, just brought into stark relief how weak our supply chains are. It's like, we got to be able to make stuff at home. Uh, I think that's good from a national security perspective. It's good for the people who get jobs here. It's good for the infrastructure that's built out around that. It doesn't mean go full autarky. Obviously, like international trade is good, but it means that like we should have wise people who sort of understand the trade-offs here and we should be able to articulate them and debate them in Congress and come up with policy that actually works for Americans instead of just being on autopilot. No, I agree. So it's funny you mentioned uh, Barry Goldwater. My, my father worked on his campaign in, I think, 1964 oh, or whatever. And of course, uh, well, yeah, my well, my parents were are, are Cuban exile Reagan Republicans. And yep. So old school yep. Republicans. So that's and his most famous quote, of course, is uh, extremism in the uh, defense of liberty is no vice and moderation in the pursuit of justice is no virtue. Right. Which he said at the at the convention, um, which I, I think is the, sen- yes. the sentiment you were tapping into. I'm saying it for the kids who don't for whom Barry Goldwater is as buried in the midst of time as Roosevelt is for us. Um, so you said a lot there. Um, uh, you know, on the antitrust side, one of my last pieces for Wired Magazine was actually the Steel Man case for antitrust for Facebook. And I think it touched on some of the similar issues you mentioned, which is that uh, antitrust legislation was written in literally in the age of the railroads. And uh, the uh, whatever the, the Bork... Uh, you know, precedent is that, you know, consumer preference and price is really the governing standard. Well, what does that mean in a free product? Like nothing. It doesn't guide you at all. And in fact, we should look at, right. again, you know, it's, it's exactly what you just said. Why should Facebook run Instagram and WhatsApp? It's not quite clear. There's no benefit to the user and there's enormous benefit to Facebook, right? For all sorts of operational and business reasons. And um, in any case, I think you're right in that antitrust law is very dated and that 70-year-old senators are probably not the people to write that legislation. I probably trust you to do that more than more than some people in, in the Senate. Um, and then the – so, I mean, I think that to me is pretty clear. And, like, actually, it's, I think most Americans could come to some consensus on that. I think the stickier thing is what you're getting at later, which is around – I mean, you're basically, I, I, you're basically saying international – borderless international trade as has existed for the past 30 years of the post-Soviet world was either a mistake or has gone too far – and we need to roll it back. Am I summarizing that your view correctly? It's just gone too far. You know, I mean, some of this globalization is uh, inevitable and irreversible. But, you know, my gosh, it's like we haven't even been trying. And we just pretend that the rising tide lifts all boats. And it demonstrably does not. It's made some people fantastically wealthy. And it's also homogenized everything. And it's empowered the sort of PMC here in America uh, relative to, you know, flyover states red country whatever you want to say the forgotten man but i think like it, it just feels like gaslighting to pretend that like uh, open 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 borders in every which way cap open capital borders um it does it does not automatically benefit every american and we ought to yeah, we at least have a talk about the trade right, the- right and by the way the, the pmc acronym i don't know how generally disseminated it is this is professional managerial class i think it was i think it was coined by michael lynn but it could be wrong um, I want to say it was James Burnham. Was oh, it you're right. Well, he wrote the managerial class book. I don't know if he used PMC. Maybe Lynn was PMC specifically. Got it. Yeah, but what? Yeah, but the, the idea obviously started with Burnham. Um, interesting. Well, so this is interesting, Blake, because 
again, you know, if <laughs> if we didn't set the context, I I wouldn't think I'm talking to the CEO of Teal Capital, <laughs> right? No, but it's like what what's inconsistent, you know? It's like to push back a little bit. Like I'm super pro capitalist, low taxes, all that stuff. It's it's just I'm not Paul Ryan. I don't pretend that that's the only thing that Republicans should be fighting for. Uh, and I, I think what matters is, you know, are, does capitalism do do free markets? Do they serve the people in your country? Because ultimately, like we care about our country, right? The job of someone in the American government is to like care about American citizens, and you know, consistent with our constitutional design, uh, provide a a framework for people to flourish. And I think markets are an incredible tool towards that end. Um, I don't want to be like democrats and just sort of regulating businesses willy-nilly i don't have an anti-business attitude it just doesn't mean we should have so-called free trade with china because maybe there is no such thing maybe china with the way that government is structured right they're always going to have their thumb on the scale and so when they dump steel and uh you know yeah we get cheap toasters but maybe everyone should pay two dollars more for a toaster so that we can actually like keep some steel manufacturing capacity here in the united states like that at least seems like a trade-off but so many people on the right want to say that's like heresy. And on the left, I think they don't care. I think they, you know, they're, they're as neoliberal as anyone. They want to empower China vis-a-vis the United States, or at least they act like it. Right. It's funny, if you look at the history of American politics, some of the more interesting and effective characters in American politics were class traitors, sort of, kind of like how you're not, I, I know it's maybe it comes off sounding like a despair. I don't mean it in a despair no, way. Totally. But if you look at FDR, he was, a massive class trader. Massive class <laughs> right. trader. And like, look at, um, I don't know, my friend, Senator Josh Hawley. It's like, I, I think this is why they hate him so much. He's, you know, and this is why they hate J.D. Right. Vance so much. It's like, you know, and I went to, I went to Stanford and Stanford Law School too. It's like, you're once you go to these schools, these people take it for granted that like, you're just going to be part of that PMC. And, you know, you're just going to shill for all the sort of upper, upper class liberal interests. And so when people like us are like, wait, this is a, this is a whole sack of lies. And like, what about all these good, normal people in the country that like, didn't get to go to these elite schools that don't get this automatic ticket into elite society. This whole regime doesn't really seem to be working out for them. In fact, most of the people in it seem to hate these people. And that seems like a problem. Uh, I think, I think it just pisses off basically like 99% of journalists. Um, Right. I mean, the, the thing is, I, I forget who coined this division. You know, there's two, two types of people in the modern world, those from somewhere and, and those from nowhere. And what, what, what's meant by that, in case the term isn't, com- isn't uh, familiar to readers, is, you know, there's a class of American who, who are from a place. Like, I, I'm from this town and I invest in this community. And then there's this, like, this floating cosmopolitan elite, right, of which I have to say I'm probably one that just flips from grad school to New York back to San Francisco and whatever. And you don't really feel best in your communities. And, and in your case, I mean, you're not that, right? Like, you're... I, if I, I'm getting your bio correct. You were raised in Arizona, did well, went into the wider world, and you came back. You're, you're someone from somewhere, right? And you're, and you're going back to that somewhere to represent that somewhere, right? And so, um, but it seems like there has to be a somewhere in the picture to have the unifying glue of what you're talking about, right? Because you're, again, humans are tribal and they're class-oriented. You're, you are extending political empathy and using your political capital to defend someone who is not in some sense in your socioeconomic cohort, but in your geographic cohort, right? Which is why you probably sense a feeling of loyalty to them. Is that, is that right? I think that's fair. Yeah. And I think, I mean, a healthy America is one where like most uh, young people, whether they're sort of, you know, um, precocious or talented or whether they're sort of more average, like whatever, most young people should not feel like 
they have to escape their place of upbringing. Like that's a problem. That is a symptom. And of course, once you get that flywheel going, it can just become um, self-fulfilling, right? If people empty out of the towns and cities where they were born to flee to the coasts, to go to the good schools, to get the six figure jobs, um, that just, that just compounds. And, you know, why would you ever want to go back? I think that's really unhealthy. It's like really unhealthy. And I think it's really weird that we basically have like designed an educational system that encourages that in a cultural system where that's just young people feel the tug to do that. But no, it's like, you should be putting down roots. You should be probably younger, you know, people should be having families earlier and you should be looking to invest in local communities. It doesn't mean people shouldn't move, but right now it's like, I think people feel stuck if they can't move to San Francisco or LA or New York, maybe, maybe the COVID thing changes this somewhat. And that's, that's maybe the one salutary thing that happened with COVID people realize maybe the big cities weren't all that were cracked up to be. And there's like all sorts of land cost arbitrage and you can go get a place, maybe not so far where you were born, get some land. Maybe that's like a more meaningful and healthy life. As long as you have like a high bandwidth connection, maybe you can find something to do and make some money. So no, I, I just, I think the brain drain to the coast is really bad. And I would love to see more people with more economic opportunity um, actually be able to put down roots in like normal places where things aren't so deranged. No, it's funny. I, I just bought this house in the desert highlands outside of Reno and I'm like on the Starlink waiting list. And um, fortunately there's a lot of local business. There's like a local I, ISPs are one of the last domains where you have like mom and pops that actually provide real technical infrastructure. And so there's like a local ISP that I'll do it. Um, you know, it's funny, you said a lot there. So a lot of what you're describing, and, and again, it's kind of a too cute a phrase is a little trad, right? In the sense of like people marrying early. I don't disagree with you, by the way. I think like I probably should have married earlier in my personal life. Like living the, the PMC lifestyle is probably a mistake, I think for a bunch of reasons. But I, you know, one thing I'll comment and, you know, it's in view, so I'll mention it. There, there's a crucifix behind you on the wall, right? And so I, I assume you're, you're, you identify as a Christian. And, you know, usually, I, again, one of my weird theories is like, there's so much of American life that's governed by corporations right now. Right? That is the only organized principle we know. And religion is one that we've kind of abandoned that used to organize a lot of, 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 of life and say things like, hey, to you to be a proper Christian or a proper man, you have to get married and have kids and undergo the restrictions and, and the joys that that represents to be a proper person in our community. So how, how do we get that back in a public forum in which th- there isn't you know, religion or there isn't that... that Yep. Uh, Really tough, really tough. I mean, I I do think the country would benefit from some sort of healthy, you know, religious revival. Um, Not my job, you know, not my my (laughs) capacity to sort of uh, to help move that along. Although, you know, just in a more secular version, I do think people underestimate the... um, you know, the power of the pulpit that a U.S. senator has, the, the the extent to which culture might actually be downstream from politics, or at least, you know, there's a f- feedback loop there. I think, um, you know, one thing I can do in my own life is to just try to set an example. Like, I can't tell you how many young people come up to me, and mainly Zoomers, because I think millennials, and I'm a millennial, I'm 35. I think millennials are basically pretty, you know, disenchanted, um, things haven't quite worked. Most of them are not on track to own a house. Most of them like have not found a mate or had kids, but I think zoomers are a little bit more into this trad thing. And so a lot of young people in their early twenties come up to me and they want advice. They want, you know, I got married at 25. Historically that would have been really late, but in my millennial cohort, that was like shockingly early, like rebelliously early. Right. And so people, um, you know, and people are really excited that I'm running and I'm younger and they just feel like, wow, maybe I could do that someday. 
you know, um, maybe I should get my shit together. Maybe I shouldn't just sit on the couch and watch Netflix and have my Postmates subscription and my boutique, you know, marijuana strain <laughs> delivery or whatever. Um, <laughs> You've been seized by the spirit of Jordan Peterson. Totally, you know, but that's that's important. That's important. And uh, I'm not going to say it's like more important than introducing the right legislation or voting the right way or doing all that stuff. We're talking about the issues on TV, but I think the the the, the cultural example, just being the anti-AOC in this respect is maybe maybe underrated cool um interesting uh yeah no that's that's quite the statement i mean i again i i tend to agree with you i think we're going to see new faces in politics we haven't seen in the past maybe it happened a little faster on the left than the right but that's going to happen as a, as a general pattern i think re- religiosity is going to come back in a big way it's already coming i mean i, I would call wokeness as, as a form of a weird secular religion sure um, yeah just without the benefit of uh any sort of redemption so it's yeah, really- no, I had I've had a bunch of interviews with Tom Holland and Rod Dreher, and I, yeah. I just did Andrew Sullivan, and it's a similar thing of like, man, this is a kind of like a weird bastardized Christianity that's taken over. Um, um, but I, I think there will be capital R religion as well. I mean, I'm going undergoing a Jewish conversion process myself, and I go to synagogue now, which I would never have imagined doing in the past. Um, so I, I think, yeah, I think you're, I think you're definitely identifying, I think, a big trend uh, that you're maybe kind of writing yourself. Um, in that way, it's which I think will be a big shakeup to American life, actually. Um, so thanks, Mike. I mean, we're both fast talkers, so we kind of blew through all my questions really quickly. I'll just mention because again, I'm I'm actually on a on a Zoom call with Blake muted. He's probably got one of the most beautiful Zoom backgrounds I've ever seen. He's got this stunning like timber frame brick thing with uh, enormous bookshelf of what look like very serious books. I you know I'm a total. Um, sort of uh, chauvinist when it comes to books. I'll definitely judge people by their bookshelves. And I just, I recognize some of the old dusty titles here and there. I see it in a book off bi- biography. I think uh, Chaos Monkeys is there oh, somewhere. Oh, is it? Oh. <laughs> somewhere, or maybe in a different room. I don't know, but it's uh, it's here. I know, I know, um, I know somebody in the Teal, in the Tealiverse sent him a copy uh, when it came out. I, <laughs> look at this, you're going to flatter me by trying to find the copy. Where is it? Well, I couldn't find that, but I do see David here listening. And here's uh, the diversity myth. David Sachs, <laughs> Peter Thiel, great book. I've got it in hardcover, which is now really expensive, by the way. I think that book's going for like more than 100 books on abebooks.com. But uh, here's a paperback. Oh, you know, I somehow didn't pick up that David had co-authored The Diversity Myth uh, with Thiel. Interesting. I, yeah, look, I don't know. I think, uh, I think you go back and read it, and it's just absolutely prescient, given all the wokeness that's happened. So pretty crazy, pretty awesome. Yeah, no, it's funny to go back and read so many authors to like, oh, shit, he saw it like 30. Like, I, I, I go back and read Christopher Lash and The Revolt of the Elites a lot. Uh, and oh it's my like, gosh, man, yeah. how did this dude, did this guy have a time machine or what? <laughs> right, right, right. Cool. Well, some people just got it. Yeah. So I'm looking at the Colin thing. I, I'm sure I'm guessing David Sachs probably plugged it because, oh, my God, we have an enormous audience right now. Um, so I think this is a great idea. This is a great last minute idea. Thanks for being accommodating, uh, Blake, and just installing the app. I'm sure David was is pleased to know end by that um i'm gonna just for those tuning in for the first time to the pull request channel um this sh- show can be listened asynchronously which is one of the great features of Colin. i'm also going to transcribe it um hopefully and turn it into a pull request q a unless um i lose my patience it's funny those things take so long um and i'll probably publish it as a podcast as well but in any case blake thanks again best of luck on your race i will definitely be even though i have Nothing invested in the state of Arizona as yet. Um, I think it's really fascinating that somebody from our world uh, has kind of, man, just gone out there and playing with the big boys in politics. This is just, I couldn't do it. 
taking taking the leap. Let's see what happens. But so far, so and, good. So and thank as you. a side question, I, and again, I don't know how much you can or want to get into this, but I note that you're still CEO at Seal Capital. Is that something you will continue doing, assuming you win? And for no, no. And if I win, then it's you know um, obviously full time politics. Uh, we're I'm hiring and delegating and all that. So yeah, I'm still CEO at Teal Capital. I'll do that for you know at least the next few months. At some point next year, you know, it's just full time campaigning. I can't do two full time jobs um forever so yeah cool it's funny i know lots of people in the in the teal universe and it's amazing i i've actually never met him but he's it's it seems amazing that he's um he definitely has created a sort of entourage around him a very capable and interesting and dynamic people and it's fascinating you should you should definitely meet we'll do a dinner you meet david some other people peter yep cool um well great thank you blake i'm going to stop this show if you don't mind blake hanging on zoom for just two seconds so we can wrap up let me um yelling at me <laughs> um or like uh, edit room jesus how do i stop this uh